worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 through 4, if you'd like to follow along. 
we remain standing in honor of God's word because it's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative. It's his perfect word revealed for us. In verse 1, Paul begins, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. You may be seated. This morning, as we go to the Lord in prayer, we'll remember Nathan and Kayla Perry. Uh, they're serving in, in Africa, and right now they're, they're home on a furlough. Um, so let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you. Uh, we thank you that, that, that we can come before you, a God who sees us, a God who knows us, a God who knows us perfectly. And this is amazing, Lord, that you know everything, that you've put a plan in place and God, you know, you know the end. And we thank you so much that we can trust in that confidence. We thank you so much that we can trust in your omniscience. But God, when we think of your omniscience as well, it, it makes us vulnerable. Because the truth is you, in knowing everything, know us perfectly. You know our sin. God, you know the motives of our heart. God, you know that even when we do good things, uh, God, it, it comes from a mix of, uh, of motives that aren't always pure. But God, you know this. God, we can't hide something from you. You know this, and yet you loved us, and you saved us. And God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that knowing exactly what it would take to save us, he went to the cross and purchased our salvation, redeemed us. And God, we thank you that, that, that as, as your word tells us, and as we have celebrated that Christ didn't remain on the cross, didn't remain in the grave, but was resurrected and he's alive. God, we thank you that that shows us a salvation that is a secure, a salvation that, that isn't, isn't threatened by death. And God, so we pray that, that you would help us to live as though this world is not all that we have to look forward to. We thank you for that hope. We thank you for Christ. God, we pray uh, and think of those across the world who are, are beneath suffering, especially those in Ukraine this morning. Father, we think there is, a, there is a church. There is your people there, and we pray for their protection. God, we pray for their witness. We pray for their testimony. We pray that you would help them to stand firm, comforted by the peace that we have in you. And God, steadfast under persecution, just as we're seeing in, in 2 Thessalonians. God, we pray that your church would be a testimony of hope and that they would have a great witness in Ukraine and across the world. God, we pray that we would have that testimony as well. God, we pray that you would give us confidence that would demonstrate to the world that we don't fear or just live for what is now, but we have confidence in a, a Savior risen. God, we pray as well for the Perrys. Uh, we pray that their time at home would be refreshing in preparing for work. We pray that their connections would continue and that you would increase, increase their ministry. Lord, this service, we desire to, in our singing, in our listening to your word, that our hearts be drawn to you. Lord, you can do that work. We trust that. 
You know exactly what needs to be done here this morning, and we have confidence in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. soul finds rest in God alone, my rock and my salvation, a fortress strong against my foes, and I will not be shaken, though waves may bless and hearts may curse, and eyes like arrows pierce me, I'll face my heart on I'll look to him who hears me.
Jesus, we thank you for the grace that you give in the gospel. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that you give to even sinful people like us to put faith in Jesus and what he has done and completed on the cross and taking the penalty for sin and giving the hope of eternal life. Lord, we pray that this morning you would open our hearts and minds that we, that we might understand your word and better be able to live in a way that reflects knowledge of you and love for you. And Lord, that as we grow in knowledge of you and love for you, that our actions too might become more and more like those of Christ as we grow closer to you, Lord, and we grow in love for you and one another. Lord, we thank you for this morning, for the chance to gather together. We pray that you'd be lifted up in our hearts and minds. We love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we begin a verse-by-verse exposition of 2 Thessalonians, a very underrated, underappreciated New Testament letter, a small book with a big message. 1 Thessalonians was about urgently loving in light of Christ's imminent return, and 2 Thessalonians is about remaining steadfast until Christ returns. The first thing I want to do as we begin is read all of 2 Thessalonians, all three chapters and then take a closer look at the first four verses of chapter 1. So this is the Word of God. Chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us." When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God would make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, Do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. 
Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only him who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Lord, we praise you for your perfect word. And we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So God intends for those in Christ to experience progress in the faith. And that progress comes through pain. And it's all to glorify 
himself. We know that Jesus Christ is history's goal. God named himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he chose Israel to be his covenant people out of all the nations. That he was preparing them for 2,000-some years to fulfill his promise to Abraham in sending a Messiah for them. We know that Christ appeared. Augustus was Roman emperor at the time. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died, he was buried, he rose on the third day. We know that Jesus sent his spirit, and now he has been sending his people for 2,000-some years with the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he is gathering his elect, he is preparing his bride. We know that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, and Christ will return in glory, and he will reign We know this, and yet there are people with no biblical compass, there are people with no hope without God in the world who explain the world in drastically different terms. And they will say, you know what, all is well with us because we did it, kind of babble-like arrogance, or there will be people who say nothing matters, It's, it's nothing matters at all. Someone once wrote, an accurate chart of the meaning of history is tracks made by a drunken fly with feet wet with ink staggering across a piece of white paper and it leads to nowhere and there's no pattern of meaning. History is littered with arrogant lies of people who are building on shifting sand and they're defying the sovereign plan of God. At the same time, While we expect an unbelieving mindset from unbelievers, there are some professing Christians that also live with an unbiblical mindset, unbiblical attitude, and a biblical outlook on life. There are Christians that think the same way as unbelievers. There are some who see trials as something to be quickly, quickly escaped or something to complain about or an excuse for bad behavior. Um, And it's easy for some professing Christians, it's easy for all of us to see people as problems, to see uh, problems in our life even as enemies to avoid. And what happens is we don't see God's hand in everything. And God wants us to. The sovereign God is in charge and there is a linear plan that leads to the grand finale of the return of the king And the judgment, the resurrection, the kingdom. And this is the stream from which 2 Thessalonians flows. And it's just straight up truth. And the first thing off the bat that we we hear Paul saying is, you're going to experience progress via pain. That Christ is history's goal, and until then we suffer, as, as we are told clearly in the scriptures through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. It's not what we want to hear, but progress is provided by God. It involves persecution. It involves pain and problems, and it calls for perseverance. That we need to stop looking for an escape route. I don't want to trigger anyone, but uh, let me take you back to March 2020. And I planned to preach Ecclesiastes. And so we started the COVID era when it hit 
in Ecclesiastes that was about living in light of dying. And right off the bat, what we learned was, we can't figure this out. We don't know. We're not in control. Only God knows. Only God saves. Only God satisfies. And we needed that truth in the midst of swirling lies. And it's the same truth we need today, that the sovereign God orchestrates everything in life. We see it in the time in which Paul wrote. In Acts 16, we read that Paul was hindered by God from going south to Asia or north to Bithynia, and he goes to Troas early April 49 AD. These are historical facts. He's directed to cross the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. This is a, a, a huge moment in history because now for the first time, the gospel went west and it's going to evangelize Europe. He arrives at the port city of Neapolis after a two-day voyage, and Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy take a one-day journey of 10 miles to Philippi. That mission at Philippi lasts two months, and Paul and Silas leave because they were being pressured by city officials. They leave Luke behind. Possibly Timothy stays with him, and they go west, and they're they're angling towards Thessalonica. It's 100 miles away. It's a 5 day walk, and they're going that way. They're following the Ignatian Road. Uh, It was filled with Roman soldiers and officials and traders and philosophers and pilgrims. They were on foot. They were on horse. They were on mule. They were in carts. And they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they arrive at Thessalonica. They come to this city, a bustling city of 200,000 people, a free city ruled by a citizen's council, a city that was founded by General Cassander in 315 BC, it was named after Alexander the Great's stepsister, and it was a very strategic city to Rome, but it was more strategic for the gospel, for the spread of the gospel, and God had sovereignly and, and providentially orchestrated things to this point, to this place called Thessalonica, which was in an ideal location. Port city, capital city, biggest city in Macedonia. It was prosperous. It was powerful. It had access to to the ocean and to the empire. It was kind of like the L.A. or the New York City of its day. And they stay there for three months, give or take. And three months in, you've got new believers. You've got Jews that are being break, break, uh, breaking through from the from the uh, synagogue. You've got. You've got Gentiles who are breaking free from their idolatrous ways, and the Jews start getting jealous because the church is growing, and they start riots and basically kick Paul out of town. Paul travels 50 miles to Berea. He stays seven weeks, and he's chased out of Berea, and he goes to Athens. He stays two months. Then he goes to Corinth. uh, January of 50 AD is probably when he was there. He stays 18 months. Timothy then, at some point, goes to Thessalonica, and he returns late 50 AD. Paul is at Corinth, and he receives this report about the Thessalonian church. The news about them had spread far and wide, and even uh, some believers had already died already at that point. And Paul writes his first letter to the church of the Thessalonians. 51 AD, he's reassuring them of God's love. He's reassuring them that Christ has not already returned and that they need to anticipate that return. 
And then several months after he writes this first letter, he gets another report. And the report is a bit concerning. He's still in Corinth. He gets this update that the issues addressed in the first letter had grown worse. And so he writes a second letter. And he addresses these issues. The first issue was that persecution had grown worse. And there are some in the church that are starting to despair. And then false ideas were being forced upon the church still about the day of the Lord. This is why, as what I just read, he says, don't, don't let anyone deceive you into thinking that the day of the Lord has already happened. And then a third issue, and it's about Christ's return, but it's an interesting development. It's that, that there were people in the church that said, well, if Jesus is coming back so soon, I don't need to work. I don't need to do what I'm called to do. And so like a good friend, I mean, if you have a good friend, they will tell you the truth. A good friend will not just tell you what you want to hear. A good friend will not just tell you what won't upset you. A good friend will tell you the truth. And so Paul tells them the truth. And he helps the church fight really against three kinds of troublemakers. Against these persecutors, against uh, peddlers of falsehood, and against people unwilling to work. And here's what he did. Chapter 1, he calls them to persevere. He describes the future judgment. In chapter 2, he clarifies the day of the Lord. And in chapter 3, he says, here's how you discipline those who refuse to work. The church today, by the way, has the same calling as in the first century. We are to be in the world, but not of it. We are to know that we are objects of God's sovereign grace and covenantal love and called to be steadfast called to stand firm in Christ, called to the steadfastness of Christ. And that we are called to make progress in Christ by God's grace through persecution and pain and problems in life. And right from the start, Paul just says it right from the start, the progress in the faith and love comes through their perseverance in suffering and persecution and pain and problems. This letter starts like a, a lot of the letters in the New Testament. In fact, it's good that it starts the same way as so many other letters in the New Testament because there are some things that need to be said up front that are very foundational, very important, not to be passed by very quickly. Verse 1 begins this way, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians. He's writing to a church. He's writing to a group of people, men and women and boys and girls of all ages, all situations in life, that are gathered as the church. They've been reborn. They've, they've got a new life. They've been transformed by the gospel. It's a church filled with Christians of all ages and situations, and some would be strong, some would be wavering, everything in between, and there'd be a smattering of others that maybe people didn't know if they were a believer or not, or they clearly said they weren't a believer. He says, I'm writing to the church, of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Kept in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the fact that there's this phrase, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, two times in a row. And it's almost identical to the first letter, except that he says, God our Father. He's the Father of Christians. And he, and he points out two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. And he's saying, God is the source of grace and peace. And he puts Jesus 
right next to the Father because Jesus is absolute deity. He is the co-author of grace, unmerited favor. He is the co-author of peace, this harmonious relationship with God. And I love the fact that Paul says essentially the same thing. I love the fact that, that Paul is essentially on repeat. It's like when your kids are learning to talk and you say something and they want you to say it again, again, again. It's like when you go to a restaurant that you like and you eat the same meal each time because you love it so much. Some things are just too good not to repeat. I go to some restaurants and they look at me and they're like, you'll have the, and they just tell me what I'm going to have because I'm like, yes, of course, it's, it's the best. On repeat. Some things are so good they must repeat. And so like your favorite dish, what you need to do is relish the repeatable gospel glories that we know in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is about Jesus. You want to know what the Bible is about? It's about Jesus. The Old Testament uh, predicted Jesus. The New Testament reveals Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. The Old Testament predicted him. The New Testament reveals him. Acts preached him. The epistles explained him. Revelation expects him. Jesus rehearsed these repeatable gospel glories. Relish the truth that Colossians 1 says that he, God, delivered us from the domain of darkness, saved us, rescued us, and transferred us, put us in another realm, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of Jesus, the reign of Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We have forgiveness in Christ. A Christian has forgiveness in Christ. You know, when you, when you start forgetting that you have forgiveness in Christ, what you find is you, you don't know how to forgive people. It's like you, you, look like you lose it. You don't, you don't know. You need to be reminded of the depths of your sin and, and, the, and the greatness of God's forgiveness. And then you begin to forgive again. The forgiveness of sins it's huge. It's Jesus' death for my life. It's, and it's the only way that anyone's ever been saved is through Jesus. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By God's grace, through faith in Christ, in Christ alone, not bringing in your filthy good works that you think are so awesome, but there's a stench. There's forgiveness in Christ. Do you have it? Do you know it? Do you relish it? Are you rejoicing in it? Forgiveness in Christ. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire basis and foundation of any growth that might happen is Jesus Christ. The progress in faith and love is now going to be commended. In fact, what he's saying is you are a healthy church. By the way, if someone is self-professed healthy, you always kind of want to have a little question mark. Like, we should not be going around saying, we are a healthy church. Like, you go to the doctor and you're like, hey, doc, I'm here for my annual checkup. By the way, you don't really need to check much because I'm healthy. I feel great. He does some checking. He says, well, you're filled with tumors. You're going to die in a week. But I feel great. He's going to tell them they're healthy. They probably would have gone, are you sure? And he's like, oh, God is doing something in you and among you that is only from him. Here's what he says in verse 3. We ought always. 
to give thanks to God for you, brothers, brothers and sisters, brethren. So Paul begins by giving thanks to God. He's not thanking them like, hey, great job. He's thanking God, thanking God for their progress. And he uses a word that's not found anywhere else in the Bible except in chapter two of this letter. So twice in the Bible, that's it. And the word is ought. We ought. It's a strong word, and it means you're obligated. It means, what he's saying is that I have a duty to God, to give thanks to God. That, I, that I'm obligated to express gratitude to God for what God has done. It's my duty to God. The Greek indicates an exclusive personal responsibility on the part of every believer. We owe it to God, is what Paul is saying. We owe it to God. We are indebted to God to give thanks to him. And he says, as is right. It's fitting. It is proper. It is rightly so. It's another reason to give thanks. It's fitting. The idea is credit where credit is due. Give the credit where it is due. That every time they recall the progress of these believers, they're going to give thanks to God. It's, it's like the clock that you have that chimes on the hour and the half hour. We had one of those at our house. We still have it. We never wind it because the kids are like, it's frightening in the middle of the night to hear these things. I'm like, you're grown. What are you talking about? They're like, just don't, don't, don't mind the clock. It's like a clock that chimes on the hour, on the half hour. Every recollection of progress Give thanks to God. It's an obligation. We owe it to God. Give credit where it's due. And here's why he's giving thanks. Still verse 3. Because your faith is growing abundantly. What that means is greatly enlarged, growing over and beyond. Have you ever used that, that spray stuff that you spray in a gap in one of the, your walls? And you spray it in and it just kind of puffs up. We did, I did that once in our kitchen and for weeks, I was like trying to get that stuff down to where I could put drywall on it. This stuff just enlarges, grows over and beyond. Well, here, the meaning is even intensified and magnified, and it pictures faith as a growing tree. Like you think of a, we've got like, you know, four fig trees at our house, and they're just, they grow expansively. He says, your faith is growing abundantly like a growing tree, and, and their faith, you know, got the thumbs up in the first letter, but they needed growth. There was a prayer for their faith to grow. In fact, Paul was anticipating a return trip to help them. He had planned his discipleship. If you're, if you're in the midst of discipleship with another believer, you want to help them grow in Christ, you plan it out. You don't go, oh, it's just happening by, you know, osmosis, or it's happening, you know, haphazardly or just willy-nilly. No, uh, he planned it out. He wanted their faith to grow. He, and what he wants to know, here's what he wanted to know. He wanted to know if their faith had survived. He wanted to know, this is what he had been asking about, he wanted to know, had their faith survived? And the news he got back was, yes, their faith had survived. Had fallen by the wayside. And, and they had made progress. Their faith had grown. You know like when you haven't seen someone in your family that maybe is an early teen and you haven't seen them for a couple years and then you go visit them or they come visit you and you're like, you're, you're a foot taller than you were before. Wow, you've grown. This is like Paul saying, 
you guys have grown like five inches spiritually. Wow, you've grown. And not only that, your faith has grown, but, but your love, the love of every one of you for one another in the aggregate here is increasing. It's expanding. It's growing greater. It's like a, a flood, a good one that irrigates the land. Their, their love had to grow. Their love needed to grow. It was Again, it got the thumbs up in the first letter, but it was prayed for that their love would increase and abound. And what Paul's saying is, wow, it worked. <laughs> yeah, it, God answered our prayers. I'm rejoicing in your progress. You have love that is expanding greater, like, like a flood irrigating the land in the most blessing of ways, and, and your love is real. Your real Christ-like love is not an emotional reaction because you like someone. In fact, Jesus called that out and said, if you just love those who love you or you like those who, you're, you're, like a, you're just like the unbelievers. Everybody does that. True biblical love is not an emotional reaction due to you liking someone or having an affinity with them. The, the choice to love is traced to your will. Like you want to love them even though it's not always easy. Just like people love you even though you're not easy to love. And it's based on God's love for us, his determining love for us, that God determines. For all the elect, God determines before the foundation of the world. He determined to set his love on you regardless of the situation and the condition that you would be in the moment that you realize that. And when you hear the gospel and, and believe, and God had determined to set his love upon you regardless of your lovability quotient or how lovely or lovable you were, and that's the kind of love that needs to be mirrored in the church where you don't pick and choose and say, well, I only love them because I like them, and I love them because they're so likable and we have such an affinity, but there's this other group of people that I'm just going to avoid the whole time. He's saying your love for one another is just overflowing the banks and it's, it's mirroring the love of God because where Christ-like love exists, there is self-sacrifice where you go the extra mile and, and you do more. They had done this. This is how they had lived. This is the labor of love. The first letter had talked about a labor of love. That idea is spiritual service where you weary yourself with hard work to love someone and you spend for them. You're not like the stingy person that says, you know, I don't have enough money for you. No, you say in terms of love, I'm going to keep loving because the well from which I am drawing from is not my own, but it's the unfathomable well of the love of God in Christ. And God supplies all that I need that God is loving you through me. And so this labor of love is this intense effort to help others through loving them, it's this intense devotion to spread the gospel despite intense persecution. Because faith and love sum up the whole Christian life, and, and it, you know what it's fed by? The word. This church 
had welcomed the word. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, you, you received it for what it really is, not the word of man, but the word of God that does its work in you who believe. The word, by the spirit, made them a loving group of people. They welcomed the word. This is what we need to do. I mean, who wants to be like them? One person, thank you. One person in first hour raised their hand. I'm like, who wants to be like this church? You know, welcome the word of God. Why? Because the word of God saves you. And the word of God sanctifies you. And the word of God strengthens you. And trains you. And grows you. And guides you. And counsels you. And revives you. And restores you. And rewards you. And, re- and rejoices your heart as it richly dwells within you. It judges you. It, it warns you. It frees you. It protects you. It makes you wise. I can go on and on. It moves you to live differently. The kingdom living is different than worldly living. The reign of Christ in your life is dramatically different than the ruinous nature of the world. And your relationships change when you grasp that gospel truth. Thomas Kelly in A Testament of Devotion said this, when we are drowned... In the overwhelming sea of the love of God, we find ourselves in a new relation to our fellows. A new kind of life sharing and love have arisen of which we had had only dim hints before. Bonds of love which knit together the early Christians, the warp and woof of the kingdom of God. This church that Paul is writing to was experiencing that progress in faith and love. I've seen it over 15 years at Grace Church. We grow in pockets. We grow in seasons. We grow and we see. We go, you know, we ebb and flow. And it's just God is always at work in his people. And so Paul is thankful for the church. Thankful for God's work in the church. Because it's interesting, every Christian needs to learn to love a local church. Not the, not the idea that is the local church, but every Christian needs to love a local church. And look beyond the annoyances as others do with you. Think about it. With all the idiosyncrasies of the local church, with all the personal quirks, with all the weird ways of doing things and things you like or things you don't like, and you gotta think this. This has gotta be the biggest thought you have as you learn to love this local church, the biggest thought needs to be, Jesus brought us together. Jesus brought us together for such a time as this. We are his, and and sometimes we're crazy family, yet we're his family. Like, he chose us. He joined us together. That's the most important truth about us. So that we need to consistently express our gratitude to God for what Christ has done. And we we are living sacrifices because of the grace of God in the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, we thank God because your faith is growing like a luxuriant tree. Roots deep and branches wide. And your love is increasing like water irrigating thirsty fields. It's overflowing to bless when your life is immersed in God by faith you are drenched in his love 
and, and you make progress in the faith. And the way the progress comes about is through pain. He says in verse 4, therefore we boast. You know, we're not supposed to boast, right? He says, we ourselves boast about you. They're not boasting about themselves. They're bragging about, they're speaking proudly about this church to other churches. Have you heard about the Thessalonians? They're on point. Have you learned about the Thessalonians? They, they, by the grace of God, you know some of them. They're kind of messed up, aren't they? Jesus has a hold of them, and things are happening. We, we, we ourselves boast about, uh, speak proudly of you in the churches of God for your steadfastness, your, perse- your, your perseverance in persecution, and the faith in, in the midst of all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. Even when there's some in the church that felt like failures because of their failures, and they felt inferior. Maybe you feel like this, like, I'm, I failed too much, I feel inferior, I'm not that. Maybe, you know, everyone else will, will kind of pull me up because I'm, I'm way down at the bottom of the class. Paul encourages the discouraged, and he says to the, to the, to the aggregate church, your progress is great. We boast about you. Other churches have heard. They want to imitate you. Anyone who hears things like that about themselves says, really? Are you sure you didn't get the wrong you know, uh, report? Was it, are you sure it wasn't from, from the Philippians or Colossians? Are you sure about that? Nobody, nobody who, who could be described like this says, you finally figured it out. <laughs> we are number one. We are the champions. No. You're like, no, you know what? There's only way we can remain steadfast is because Christ carries us. We persevere. We patiently endure. We remain under. That word steadfast means to remain under, to wait, not to run, to bear up under difficulty, to, to not be resigned to, well, this is just the way it is, but to have a blazing hope for the future such that makes you want to stay that you're not just grimly waiting for the outcome or just, you know, hoping for daylight. I remember once I was on a uh, backpack trip with some friends in, in Mammoth and I got this horrendous mountain headache and it was like a, a steel pole had just was through my head and I was just walking around with that and then I couldn't sleep the whole night and all I was doing was just hoping for daybreak. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is a radiant hope. It's ablaze with the glory of Christ. And while you live, while every Christian lives with daily pressures, with daily problems, with daily pain and persecution even, and when you have all your bad days at work and your marriage doesn't seem to be working out and you've got the insult from friends and you've got kids that are misbehaving and, and there are Christians who have threats to be killed, There's a steadfastness where you bear up because you know a day is coming where all will be made right. Steadfast and also endurance. Endurance is a visible fruit of faith. Endurance is a very aggressive and courageous Christian quality and it's it's this. You don't have self-pity when you're going through the hard times. 
you endure and you don't tell everyone you're doing it. You don't walk around and say, oh, it's so bad. You don't, you don't lie, but there's a visible, aggressive, courageous fruit that comes out of your life and you endure. It's like running a race and you keep going. They endured in their faith. The faithfulness and fidelity and a tenacious loyalty to Christ in spite of fierce, fierce adversity. That they were an example to others and their faith remained strong in suffering so others could say, wow, I might make it too. Because that wave of persecution was coming at them as well. All by God's grace. In persecution, in trials. Persecution is where you suffer for your faith in Christ. That's what persecution is. It's a special word for persecution inflicted by enemies of the gospel upon a believer. Trials, on the other hand, is everything everyone goes through because they're a sinful person living in a sinful world. Unbelievers go through trials. Believers go through trials. It's the pressure. Now, believers go through trials in Christ. They have Christ indwelling. This pressure, it's, it's a general word for troubles of any kind. So you've got persecution where you're being mistreated as a Christian, and then you've got affliction or trials, which is the normal problems of a sinful person living in a fallen world. And he's saying, you are enduring. You are, you are bearing up. And it's in the present tense. You know why? Because just because Paul got thrown out of town didn't mean that the persecution stopped. In fact, with Paul out of the picture, it got worse. Why would it get worse? Because you don't just have one person living the gospel. You've got a whole church living the gospel. And they have an effective witness for Christ. They had genuine faith. And it created more persecution. Genuine faith, by the way, produces hope in Christ. Where you would endure. You don't passively accept the painful circumstance. You patiently endure. You actively endure the issues. And what you see happen is, and you don't make it happen, but you are strengthened through them. You're able to look back and go, wow, when I am weak, then I am strong. God's grace is sufficient for me. Wow, I'm kind of like that good soil that hears the word and holds it fast and bears fruit with patience. Wow, I'm going to consider it all joy when I encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of my faith produces endurance. As James says in James 5.11, blessed are the ones who remain steadfast. And then name checks Job. You know of the steadfastness of Job. You know of the purpose of the Lord. You know that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. His mercy on your soul. Therefore, you can live in steadfast endurance. The doctrine this points out is the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. R.C. Sproul called it the preservation of the saints. I like that. Because persevering sounds like something we do on our own. But the idea is that believers are effectually called by God. They're reborn by the Holy Spirit. And they endure to the end because God preserves them. It's the only way that you and I are going to re, uh, endure to the end. Just like you were saved by God's initiative, you will be preserved by God's initiative. That he takes you from spiritual death to life. That he... Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. That what he starts in your soul, 
He will finish. Progress is painful. Suffering is like, you know, corrective lenses. You're able to see reality clearly. You, you should suffer through the lens of God's redeeming work in Christ. And don't wait to thank God till after the trial passes. Thank him in the middle of it. It's from him for your good. You, you cannot grow strong in the faith without pain. It's like childbirth. Always pain before a child is born. That you would be strengthened, as Paul prayed for the Colossians, with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, that you would be, as he wrote in his first letter, not moved by these afflictions because we were destined for this, that as the apostles rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor and shame for the name of Christ, we would too, because in the sovereign plan of God, you will suffer with Christ. That God is orchestrating all things, all things whatsoever in your life. And sometimes life does go very well, by the way. Sometimes life goes very well and you should enjoy it. But at the same time, on your best day, you might still be enduring a headache or a backache or a toothache or a heartache. And, and I know what happens. Here's what we do. We, we either underplay the trials and persecutions or we overplay it. If you underplay it, you say, we're not being persecuted for our faith. And then if you overplay it, you're like, we're suffering so much for our faith. Okay, which one is it? If you underplay it, you, you got to realize this. Maybe your suffering isn't as bad as some, but maybe you're not recognizing it. Jesus said that they're going to say all kinds of things against you falsely on account of me. If you overplay it, you're going to see everything as persecution because you're self-absorbed. And by the way, many people bring trouble upon themselves because of their bad behavior. Peter said it well. Don't, by any means, suffer as an evildoer. You got to understand how God works. Pain is spiritual fertilizer for your soul. Sometimes it stinks, but it is oh so good and oh so helpful. And it brings about growth. You get all the nutrients you need. Pain is the spiritual fertilizer your soul needs. That all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Persecution is the church's friend. It frees us from false professions of faith. It frees us from the fear of man. It frees us from faulty theology. And it fortifies us. It fortifies the family of God. It gives us perspective. that We see pain as an opportunity, not an obstacle to the glory of God. I know, I know every one of us, including me, wants problem-free. The problem with that kind of thinking is we start thinking things like this. If I just have enough faith, I will have no problems. I will keep my end of the bargain. God will keep his and bless me. Those are lies. You grow strong through trying times. Strong winds make deep roots and... You have to persevere. It's like pushing through like a shade plant is reaching for sun. Uh, you make 
progress because of pain, which is counterintuitive, which is why we're told to count it all joy, because we don't naturally do that. Seasoned uh, seafarers say the best way to ride out a storm is to anchor deep. Hebrews 6.19 reminds us that we have an anchoring hope that is safe and secure, and his name is Jesus. Therefore, we can persevere in discipleship. Therefore, we can persevere in marriage and parenting and work and tell ourselves the gospel truth. We can be anchored in the word and prayer and deeply devoted to a local church and have a worldview that is gospel drenched and walk in repentance and when we have problems we give ourselves the gospel and when there's plenty we savor the gospel and when there's pain we apply the gospel in the problem of pain C.S. Lewis wrote that pain insists on being attended to the God shouts in our pain because it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world God uses pain to wake you up it's like an alarm that you would continue in the faith stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. You would have confidence regarding the future and it would brace you to face opposition while continuing in the gospel. Grace to endure. Progress via pain. That's the way to health. Remain steadfast. Amy Carmichael was a missionary in India that rescued girls that were trafficked in slavery and mistreated horribly and experienced shame because of what happened in these Hindu temples. And she took a group of rescued girls to a goldsmith once, and he was uh, refining gold. And what he would do is uh, he would keep dropping lumps of gold into the fire. Then he would take some tongs and he would lift the gold out and then let it cool off and look at it, and then put it back in the fire. And then he would make the fire hotter, and he would do the same thing over and over again. And the reason why is because the gold was being progressively refined and purified, and the goldsmith said, when I can see my face in it, then I know it's pure. Well, there's the riptide pull of the world for you right now, and the flesh and the devil are strong, but Jesus is stronger And he has ordained the pain that you are going through right now to make you stronger because he delights to develop you like Christ. And God is putting you through suffering to purify you, to strengthen you, to trust him in his process. This is what happened in this church of the Thessalonians. This is what happens in this church, Grace Church, to make us like Christ. When, When God sees his image reflected in you, that sanctification is becoming reality. As Job said, when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Lord, we thank you. We praise you that this is all because of your initiation and your intention and your great, great gospel plan that you intend for us to experience progress even via pain. And we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of all that, there is joy, there is freedom, there is forgiveness. There is goodness in Christ. Praise you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand if you're able to be close singing together.
that you will enjoy some sweet fellowship together after the service. Uh, thank you for joining us in person. Also, I know we have people uh, in France that are watching right now, as well as other places around the world. So praise God uh, for friends that we are uh, bonded with in Christian love. Uh, I want to close with the prayer at the end of chapter 1 that says, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that we can preach Christ crucified, risen, reigning, returning. And thank you, Lord, that any progress we see 
is due to your grace and mercy that you carry your people through everything in in this joyful, painful, sanctifying process. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me in the storm, sovereign.